so as Quinn just mentioned, um, in being open to God's Spirit, I think it's only appropriate that I just can my message for this evening, and we spend this time just praying for Andrea. <laughs> you set me up for that one, I had to do it. Guys, I've done this before, dropped my sermon and lost everything. I've learned. I put page numbers at the top now. I'm growing. Um, so great to be with y'all here this evening and uh, spend some time together studying God's Word. I'm looking forward to closing out our little mini-series here on the book of Daniel. Um, but first of all, I just have to say it is so nice to have this warm weather, isn't it? I know we've all been hurting. Um, the sun and like temperatures above 25 do a lot for morale, huh? Um, I want to tell you guys, you may not have known this about me, but I've gone through a major transition point. Um, a new chapter in my life has kind of turned the page here over the past two weeks. And uh, the chapter is this. Um, the final season of Parks and Recreation has come to a close. Yes, this is a big deal. Um, Parks and Rec. Does anybody watch Parks and Rec in here? What a great show. It takes place in this, um, in case you haven't seen it, it takes place in this mythical town of Pawnee, Indiana. And uh, it's really cool. They even make references to like going to different stores in Bloomington. And uh, they drink juice boxes from Upland Juice Box Company in Bloomington. Just kidding, you guys know. Um, it's pretty cool. I love all the Indiana references in this uh, TV series, but the thing that's really funny about this is they make it seem like working in local government would be like the coolest job ever. Um, but if you went in like a city hall or if you go to like the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, does it not seem like working in city or local government would be like the most boring thing ever? Um, but TV has a really unique way of making incredibly boring things look glamorous. Um, yeah, I don't know how many children grow up saying, I, I just would love to work in city government. Um, but Parks and Rec makes it really sweet. My favorite character is this guy named Ron Swanson. And even if you've never seen the show, you've probably seen Ron Swanson on like a commercial or something. He's your like uh, your stereotypical Hoosier, like this really like good guy with like the nice part in his hair and a mustache and he's really like patriotic and loves uh, steaks and scotch. Um, with nothing on the side of his steak or nothing with his scotch, just steak and scotch. Um, that's Ron Swanson's perfect meal. Um, the only vegetable he eats is bacon. And uh, but he gets them vicariously through the pigs that ate the bacon. And so uh, Ron Swanson is kind of this funny guy. His number one goal as a government employee is to make the government really inefficient so nothing can happen because he's not a big government fan. And uh, the problem is Ron is just such a good and dependable guy that he can't help but benefit the system. He's just that kind of guy. He gets stuff done, he's a dependable person, and uh, so the city government thrives despite Ron's best efforts. But um, as I watch this show, I always think, like, it's kind of funny, like, this guy, how did he end up making a career in local government? Um, and uh, the reason I tell this story about Parks and Rec is, look at the story of Daniel. He's this guy who was ripped out of the nation in Israel, he out of the nation of Israel. He probably did not grow up imagining himself spending his entire life working as a government employee, first for Babylon and then Persia once he turned 80. So he worked for Babylon from the time he was a late teenager in the court of, in the, court of the king of Babylon. 
Um, and after that nation was overthrown in his 80s, he became an employee of the Persian Empire. Uh, I think Ron Swanson got one up. Daniel is an even more unlikely person to spend his life working a career um, in government than Ron Swanson. And uh, so if you were here last week, you may remember we're just at this point in the story of Daniel where he is in his late 80s. He's progressed in age. Babylon has just been conquered by the Persian Empire. Um, as a result of their arrogance, their failure to recognize that God was over them, that God was really in authority and not their kings. And so the Persians are now in charge. And uh, tonight's story is one in which you'll see Daniel in this very first year of the Persians being in charge. Daniel is now uh, working for them. And it's a really common story that I'm sure you all heard often as a child. Um, but I can't even remember the last time I heard a, uh, a story preached on this message, Daniel and the lion's den. Um, so immediately when I say that, you're all like, yep, I know what he's going to say. And uh, if you're like me, you're probably like going to be kind of quick to tune it out because you already know what the story has to say, right? But uh, I want to take a moment and pray for us because I think that God wants to speak to us in a new and fresh way through this story tonight. I know that he's done that for me this week. He's really challenged me and encouraged me in a way that I didn't really expect. Um, before I began to study this passage, and I want to pray that he'll do the same for you. So would you, would you please join me? Father God, we thank you that um, your word is living, your word is active. Um, God, you meet us in our lives in so many different ways. Um, you speak to us through your word as children, and you speak to us through that same word as adults, sometimes in different ways. Um, but God, we know that your word is true, we know that it is powerful, and we know that you are in this place, you're among us. And um, I just pray that you would impact my heart, that you would impact um, those who are here's hearts with the power of your word as you speak through it uh, to us, that we would be equipped um, for ministry as your people, that we would be inspired to faith, um, that we would know you more deeply. And uh, we do ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you can open up there. I'm going to begin right at the beginning, um, in verse 1. Here we go. It pleased Darius, this is the king of Persia, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So like I mentioned, the Medes and the Persians have overthrown Babylon as this Persian Empire continued to expand. And the Persian Empire would be way bigger than even the Babylonian Empire that came before it. So if you kind of look at that part of the globe, the Persian Empire would have encompassed much of the Near East, modern Turkey, North Africa, um, even Egypt and parts of India. So this is a huge empire. And King Darius we're reading about here he knew that he couldn't just oversee this all by himself. And so he divided Babylon as part of the empire into this uh, unique word we see here, satraps, into these 120 provinces. Um, the word means region. And so he set these satraps over these regions, 120 of them. And as the text explains, these satraps each reported to an administrator, and there were three of them, one of which was Daniel. And so it's kind of interesting, wasn't Daniel an employee of the Babylon, um, the Babylonian Empire? This guy's in his 80s, you would think he's about ready to retire. Evidently not. Um, just as in Babylon, now with the new rule, 
Daniel's character, his abilities, and his gifts, and his administrative skills um, were evident. They were clear. His past came before him. And as the Persians took over this empire, Daniel was once again summoned by the king to be put into a position of leadership. Uh, Daniel wouldn't really be a person who they considered a risk. Um, his skills would only benefit them because he was an Israelite himself in exile in this land. And so, uh, as Daniel led as an administrator over these satraps, his character and his leadership abilities once again spoke for themselves. He was incredibly effective in his role, and the king took note as we saw. He set these plans in course to put Daniel over the entire kingdom. And so, there's a lot of land in the Persian Empire. It would only make sense for this king to put prime ministers of sorts in charge of these different regions to rule on his behalf. And this was the plan he had for Daniel, to make him the man in charge of Babylon. But uh, as we'll see next, some of Daniel's fellow government employees had other plans. Uh, take a look at verse 4 here. And so the king planned to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. Verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless he has something to do with the law of his God. And so we see Daniel here in this position where the other government workers don't want him to be promoted, and they're trying to find a way to keep him from advancing by catching him in wrongdoing. And, uh, you know, you have to wonder, why are they out to get Daniel? Isn't he a really good guy? Uh, what I want to say is that I think his integrity is the exact reason why they are out to get him. Uh, maybe it was his strong character that made it difficult for these men themselves to get away with political corruption of their own. Uh, maybe they wanted to eliminate Daniel because he was old and they wanted some young blood in his position. Maybe it was because he was Jewish. We definitely see that as part of it later in this passage. And the text really isn't entirely clear on why they want to keep Daniel from advancing here. But it definitely is clear that Daniel's a man of integrity and that he's incredibly competent. Um, he'd be a great man for this job, and it makes sense to put him there. But these men had fault with Daniel, and they wanted to keep him from advancing into this position of being the prime minister over Babylon. Uh, regardless of what their reason was, they weren't able to find this corruption in Daniel, and so they have to get creative in finding an angle to bring him down. Um, and looking for a way to bring down a man like this, you have to find a way to use his strengths against him almost, and that's exactly what they do. Um, it's clear that Daniel is a devout follower of Yahweh, so they get this idea to set a trap for them that they're sure he won't be able to avoid. They're going to force him to choose between his faith and being faithful to the government mandate the king had set before them. They're going to force him to make this choice. And with Daniel's integrity and commitment to his God, they knew what he would choose before it even came before him. They're guaranteed to snare him with this plan. So they come up with this perfect plan. Let's read it here. Uh, we're in verse 6 now. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, Satraps, advisors, and governments have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. 
Now the king, now O king, issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So keep a finger in that passage there. I think we need to take note that, first off, when these men propose the idea to the king of this decree, uh, they're absolutely lying to him. They tell him that all of the satraps, prefects, and administrators came up with the idea together. And if the king was thinking clearly at all, he would know there's no way that this could possibly be true. Daniel, this man who he had in mind for prime minister, uh, was a devout follower of the God of Israel. Everyone would have known that about him. I mean, this man left a legacy throughout his time of service with the Babylonian Empire. These constant stories of God working through Daniel to benefit the kings of Babylon, um, despite the fact that they weren't even believers in him. Uh, Daniel was a man who had left a spiritual legacy and his reputation as a follower of God preceded him. But the king's arrogance totally caused him to forget this. The appeal of this edict, uh, as a result of the king's inward focus, made him overlook the ramifications that would come along with issuing this. Um, so why would it have been so appealing to him? I think we need to remember that this is a king who's just come into power here, and he's looking for a way to reinforce that power to his subjects, these people of Babylon who he's among. He wanted to let them know there's a new king in town, this Cyrus of Persia, Darius of Persia, he's, he's referred to as both. He was in charge, and they had better recognize it. Worship him. Worship him alone or die. This is brutal. So, I don't know if you guys remember the story we... I think it was the second week in our Daniel series, we talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar for their failure to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you know, we look back on that and we're like, oh my gosh, you're going to burn these guys alive? So once again, the Persians take things a step further. They actually worshipped fire in the Persian Empire. And so instead of burning their criminals alive, they came up with the very creative idea of just, why don't we put a lion in a pit and then just throw the bad guys in this pit and the lions can eat them. I mean, what a great way to punish people. Um, wow, the evolution of man, what a beautiful thing. So this is their way of punishing people. Um, very cruel, but that was the culture. And so these were pits that were often used to store water, but in the dry season, this is how they used them. This is how they punished criminals. And uh, so to top it all off, these men remind Darius of the way in which the law of the Medes and the Persians worked. Once an edict was in writing and the king signed off on it, it was irrevocable. There's no way you could go back on it. The people had to obey it. The king had to abide by it. No matter what, he couldn't change it. And so the king, uh, he really likes all that he's heard. It sounds like a great idea. Um, he issues the edict. And so when we look at this plan that these men have hatched here to snare Daniel, we'd all agree that it's an evil plan, but I think we also would agree that these men are kind of evil geniuses, right? This is a really solid plan to bring down a man who had a lot of integrity. Um, they're going to take care of the, they're going to take advantage of the king's arrogance. There's no way he wouldn't go for this as he tried to establish his power over these people. And they're going to take advantage of Daniel's integrity. There's no way he'd turn his back on his God. And so their evil genius strategy uh, to bring Daniel down and keep him from attaining this higher office is just perfect. Um, Kelly School of Business, Game Theory. I think they must have taken this class. Uh, so let's continue on. Verse 10 here. 
Let's see how this works out. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. And so, just as the king expected, uh, just as expected, this king made the decree, and Daniel changed nothing about his habits of devotion to God. He prayed three times a day, as was the custom of devout Jews. The text says he prayed in his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. And uh, in my mind, when I think of that, I often imagine like Daniel standing there, like kneeling, like with this massive window open. But actually, in this period of time, in this region of the world, the way windows work were there were these really small openings at the top of the room. And so this wouldn't have been some sort of public display, like everybody look at me and how devout I am. Uh, these men would have had to seek Daniel out in order to catch him here. And so Daniel's kneeling in his upstairs room in prayer, and the men come here and they find him in his home. And they catch him in the trap, just as they laid out for him. Daniel's praying. He's facing toward Jerusalem. This was an expression of the fact that his prayers were unhindered before God. He trusted God would hear him, and he prayed, and he gave thanks uh, as a man of humility and dependence on God. But here he is in the midst of that act, being caught in this men's, these men's evil plan. Um, these guys knew his routine, and they totally took advantage of it. And so they go to the king, like we just read. They tell him, uh, remember that edict you signed? Well, we found a lawbreaker. It's Daniel. And the words there in that text, uh, the king is just frantic when he hears this news. Imagine what must have been on his mind. He was probably like, oh, no. How did I forget that? Um, how could he have forgotten about Daniel's faith when he made this law? Daniel, this man he thought so well of and relied on to such a great extent, that he wanted to put him in charge of the administration over his kingdom. How can he forget that Daniel was such a devout follower of Yahweh? What a fool he'd been in issuing this command. Um, there's no way out of this. Daniel would be executed unless the king found a way out of it. And so we read, he spends the rest of the day just restless, looking for a loophole. But these conspirators against Daniel come and remind the king of the rules of their law and its permanence once written. There's no way out of this. Daniel has to die. Um, the king knows what he has to do and he gives the order. And so, right before Daniel's thrown into the pit of lions, the king says to him, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. And he's not a follower of Daniel's God himself, but he means this so much. He knows that Daniel has been so faithful in his obedience to his God. He's followed him with earnest desire to obey him. This is a man that the king respects and he admires, and he's about to execute him. What he's saying to Daniel basically is, I tried to save you and failed, 
Now it's up to your God to save you. You've served him faithfully. Your fate is in your hands. Uh, man, I hope it works out. And so, this is a pit with lions we're talking about here. This would have been deep, used to store water most likely at an earlier time, and once the person was thrown out, this very small hole at the top was covered over with a rock. This stone was rolled over there to keep um, any glimmer of hope from emerging. Let's be honest about it, even if that rock wasn't there, Daniel's probably not climbing out of the pit, being 80 years old. Um, I don't want to doubt him, but he was probably um, not the most spry fella at this point in the game. But uh, this, is, this is a really harsh situation for Daniel. And even if um, he was able to climb, odds are his arms and legs would probably be ripped from his body as soon as he hit the ground by these hungry lions. And so things really aren't looking good. And Daniel's thrown into the pit, and the rock is rolled over the hole. And then the king and the nobles come and they seal this stone we read with their signet rings. And this is to let people know that to move this stone um, would be to go against their royal authority. You touch that stone, you're probably ending up in the pit yourself. And so uh, we continue on here and we read that it was a really long night for the king back at his palace. The text says he didn't eat a thing. Um, I have a hard time going three hours without eating a thing. Um, and no entertainment was brought to him. And so he's pretty much staring at the wall, not even thinking about the fact that he's hungry because he's so distraught over the fact that Daniel is in this place. He's staring there imagining this old man, um, guilty of no wrongdoing, being ripped limb from limb. Why? Because of his own arrogance. Um, the king didn't sleep a wink, we read. And so the story takes an interesting turn. Evidently, in the midst of that sleeplessness, the king came to the idea that it would be fair if he gave the lions a night to destroy Daniel and do their duty. But if they hadn't killed him by sunrise, then that meant that Daniel's God had spared his life and it would be permissible to let him out. And so the night expires, and at the first crack of dawn, the king just bolts from his palace over to the pit where they left David. Daniel, pardon me. Uh, David was not there. David was dead for a long time at this point. And so uh, let's pick back up in verse 20. So the king rushes to the pit. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, your God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And so uh, if, you know, if you know how the story ends, here's a quick spoiler. Uh, Daniel's actually alive. Um, but knowing that, wouldn't it have been funny if when the king yelled at Daniel, just waited a few seconds to make him squirm? Daniel, serve the most high God, is your God spared you? He's like, yeah, I'm down here. And the king's like, oh my God, why'd you do that? Um, and so let's pick up back in verse 21. Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the pit. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And so what the king had hoped for had come true, and he is absolutely overjoyed when he heard Daniel's voice. His words um, make it so clear, the words that Daniel spoke, that God had intervened on his behalf. He didn't just make it through that night because the lions weren't hungry. 
he made it through because God had sent an angel to shut their mouths. Um, he wasn't even scratched. So, like, imagine the scene in this den. Here's Daniel tumbling into this den of these hungry beasts who are ready to kill him. And there's this angel who just steps in over these lions on the prow, ready to devour him. Shut your mouth! Smashes their mouths shut. These lions aren't touching him. The angel shut their mouth. Um, I like to imagine these angels literally yelling, shut your mouth. Um, and so God rescues Daniel from this pit. Daniel had done nothing to deserve it, but he ended up there nonetheless. He'd done nothing wrong before God. He'd done nothing wrong for the king, but there he was in this pit. But that's not the end of the story. God rescued him from it. He wasn't done with Daniel. He had more to use him for in making his, known, his name known throughout Babylon. God rescued him from the pit and displayed his power in an incredible way before the very king of Persia. And so this king is just incredibly glad that things have worked out for Daniel. But he's also really ticked at those smarmy little government officials who conspired to put Daniel in this place uh, to begin with. Let's read what happens to these fellows. Verse 24, At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Wow. Um, so I hope you know that not everything you read in the Bible is meant to be taken as an example for the way things should be today, because that is a terrible way to punish people for wrongdoing. Um, but that was the culture at this time. These conspirators and their families get the punishment that they had intended for Daniel. Um, do you think that's a brutal and cruel punishment? You should. It is. You're right. Some people are like, eh. It is. Um, but this was a really normal punishment for this time and place. Um, the reason they threw his wife, their wives and children in is that sin at that time, wrongdoing, um, pardon me, wrongdoing, not sin, and this culture was seen as a corporate error. And so corporate punishment was their idea of what was fully appropriate. This wasn't uncommon. And I will actually see this again in two weeks when John Mangrum preaches about Esther and uh, the character of Haman at the end of that story. He and his family meet a similar demise. Uh, that's another spoiler for you. And so this chapter ends with King Darius writing to the whole Persian Empire, stating what Daniel's God had done and how he should be honored all throughout the land. Let's conclude the chapter here. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. That's a lot of people. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. It's a little bit different from his last decree, huh? For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Um, man, what a crazy chapter. What a different decree there that he reads at the end, huh? How different from this one making himself uh, the only one that people are able to worship now. Here he is, someone who prior to this had little to no respect for the God of Israel, sending out the decree to the entire Persian Empire, making the God of Daniel known, and even offering these words of honor towards Daniel's God. It's incredible. 
Um, man, the drama of this story is nuts, isn't it? We just see this evil plot against Daniel first. And then Daniel keeps it real, maintains his integrity, and then gets sentenced to death. And then God saves him uh, as he's supposed to be dying. And then the tables turn as a result of God's saving power. We see justice realized and God's will accomplished. And we see that God used the whole thing to make his known through his name known throughout the whole empire. And uh, just incredible to see the twists and turns of this story. But it's not really out of the norm. We've seen so many stories like this in the book of Daniel where we're like, wait, how did that end that way based on what we saw at the beginning? It's absolutely incredible. And there's a part of this story that always sticks out to me when I read it. And that's what I want to focus on here for these last few minutes. The part of the story that really gets me is how Daniel is tossed in the pit as a result of his staying faithful to God. It's a direct result of his staying faithful to God that he ends up in a hole full of hungry lions. Uh, there is a large part of me that just wants to say, God, come on, that stinks. This is not fair. This is just not fair. It's not the way this should work. This man has been faithful to you. He's maintained his, his integrity in a situation where it could have been compromised. Um, why don't you back him up? But that's not the way it works out. Daniel ends up in the lion's den. And I know this is a cheesy way of stating it, but uh, I think this feeling could be summed up this way. God, whatever happened to good things happened to good people, right? Um, I think a lot of people believe that that phrase is in scripture. It's not, by the way. Um, whatever happened to good things happened to good people. Uh, isn't that just such a clean and simple way of making sense of things? I'm just a good person. Things are going to work out well for me. Um, man, it's so, it's so nice and tidy. The only problem is it's completely untrue. We all know that's untrue. Good things don't always happen to good people. Um, I have a hard time even saying always in that statement. Good things very rarely happen to good people. We see this all the time. All the time in the lives of people throughout scripture. We see it in the first two millenniums of the church. Martyrdom after martyrdom of the people who stayed faithful to God. We see it today. We know it to be true in our own experience. Good things don't always happen to people who earnestly follow God. That's just not the way it works. People who follow God often go through terrible things, and often it's a result of their faithfulness to God. Um, but I also want to say that this story gives us a new paradigm. It shakes up the way we view our circumstances about the harsh side of life. This story shows us that the presence of pain, hardship, and confusion by no means leads us to believe that God is not present with us in the midst of those circumstances or that he's not sovereign over them. In this story that we just read, God did not rescue Daniel from the wrong that was being committed against him. Um, in God's sovereign will, he allowed Daniel to go through this event, nothing that he deserved, but he allowed Daniel to go through it, and he never left him for an instant. For an instant, He was with him in the midst of the lion's den. And so, keep in mind here, this isn't God rescuing Daniel as he's being walked to the electric chair. Daniel's sitting on the electric chair, and the switch has been flipped. He's in the lion's den. Um, his death penalty is being executed. 
and God rescues him in the midst of it. Daniel was supposed to be a dead man. That would only make sense. But God rescued him in the midst of it. Now keep in mind, that had to have been incredibly scary for Daniel to be thrown in the pit, right? Um, he was in this pit, but God was with him in the midst of it. He met him right there. He didn't spare Daniel of the pain, but he did meet him in the midst of it, and he did save him. Why did he do that? He did it to make his name known throughout all of Persia, and he accomplished that as we saw at the end of the story. And so, I want to take a few things away from this story for us as the church today and our expectations of what it looks like to be God's followers. I think that we should be shaken up a little bit by this story. And uh, to share a little bit of why on a personal level, I have to admit that in my head, I know that my faith in Christ doesn't entitle me to a painless life. Like, that is, that is something I know in my head. But in my heart, uh, I often don't get the memo. And I find myself incredibly discouraged when my circumstances are rough. Uh, I can perceive God to be the bulldozer that levels out the mountains before me instead of the God who walks alongside me as I traverse them. I can find myself demoralized when my circumstances are rough. And if you're anything like me, you probably need to remember that we are never promised to be spared of all pain or difficulty. And God doesn't promise us a comfortable or easy life. But the good news is that he does make deeper promises to us. And those are that his will is going to be accomplished in our lives. That he will be with us and that his grace will be sufficient for us no matter what we go through. That is a much bigger promise. We can trust him. We can trust that his will is based on his full knowledge and his full wisdom. We know that he is good and that his hand cannot be stopped. God's will is going to be accomplished. We don't have his full knowledge. We don't have his full wisdom. We can't always understand what he's doing, but we can trust that he is faithful and that he's over all of it. And so despite this self-righteous voice that can creep into my head and tell me otherwise. Um, the Christian faith has nothing to do with the idea that good things happen to good people. That's not true, despite what my own self-righteous tendencies tell me. You know why? Um, the reason why is because our entire faith is based on an event where the worst thing that ever happened in history happened to the best person who ever lived. Um, that's the story of the cross of Christ, isn't it? Um, God is in the business of bringing death out of life. He's in the business of bringing beautiful things out of absolute messes. The only perfect human being who was fully righteous and able to fulfill the requirements before God was executed to pay the penalty for our sin. He sacrificed himself, gave his own flesh and blood that we might be right with the Father despite our wrongdoing and our tendency to turn ourselves inward. The cross of Christ changes everything. And so, as we look to Christ in hope in these times when we feel discouraged and demoralized by our circumstances, we have to keep that promise in front of us. Um, when we're tempted to close our eyes and just try and force it to happen um, in our own power, we just have to keep an eye of faith open and know that God is at work to know, to know that God is able, to know that God is powerful, that he's good, and that he's wise. And so, I want to conclude um, by saying this. 
I think good things happen to good people is a terrible motto to live by. Um, that's a terrible motto to put our trust in, right? And so I want to propose a new motto for us. And that motto is this. God's things happen to God's people. Isn't that the story of Daniel? God's things happen to God's people. All throughout his time in Babylon, these crazy circumstances where nothing good could ever emerge from it. God used it to make his name known in that kingdom and to spread his name throughout the nations, throughout the whole world, as he worked in the midst of circumstances that made no sense. God's things happened to God's people because God was powerful, God was wise, and he made it happen. That's Daniel's story, and if you've trusted in Christ, that is your story. Hold on to that hope. You don't have to understand it, but you can trust that God will be faithful. His will is not going to be thwarted in your life. It's going to be accomplished, and nothing can stop that. Not even death. Not even death can stop that. Um, why? Because in the midst of our circumstances, as we await God's rescue, we can hold on knowing that God has already rescued us in the way we needed it most. Acts 2.21 says, Anyone who calls upon his name, he shall be saved. God gave his only son to save us from our sin and death. Uh, how much more can we trust him with our lives, right? If he saved us from sin and death, how can we not trust him with our circumstances? That only makes sense. God is going to be faithful. Paul in Romans 8 says it this way. I'm convinced that neither life nor death, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, that promise is yours. And if, if you're not a Christian, if you want to be a part of that promise, all it takes is this simple acknowledgement of your brokenness and looking to Christ with your need. Trusting his mercy, trusting that it's enough for you, it is. Jesus satisfies. Look to him in faith and accept the forgiveness that he gives you. He's powerful. He's able to do that. And his spirit's inside of you. When you trust him in faith, guiding you along the life that he's created you in him to live. Your future is sealed in him. And so, as we leave here, I want to encourage you with this. If you're a Christian, you're an ambassador of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5.20. And as an ambassador of Christ, he's making his appeal through you. And so in this town, um, in our world, where people's circumstances can change their life, they can change their hope on the flip of a dime, uh, their sense of hope, their sense of peace can be crushed in an instant by their circumstances. How can you be an ambassador of the hope that is in Jesus Christ? Maybe it's through the way you walk through your circumstances yourself, by holding on to that hope when what's before you looks like more than you can handle. Uh, maybe it's through encouraging a friend and what they're going through. Maybe it's by even coming alongside them and helping them take a step towards seeing and believing where ultimate hope is really found, where ultimate peace is really found, and that's in Jesus Christ. And so as we go from here, I am praying for you guys that God will open doors for you uh, this week and over spring break, that in your friends, uh, amongst your families, the people you meet, that God will open doors for you to give an account for that faith, that you will, need, that you will be an ambassador for Jesus Christ as he makes his appeal through you. Um, we have been blessed in Christ to be a blessing to others. And so let's pray uh, about that right now. God, 
Uh, we thank you so much that you are the God who saves, that our hope is in you. God, we recognize that you are all wise, you are all powerful, and we humble ourselves before you, recognizing that we are a people who are greatly in need. God, we are not good in and of ourselves. Um, we are people who desperately need you. And we thank you that you've met us in the midst of our mess, that you have given us grace, that you've traded our sin. Um, you've taken it from us and given us your righteousness. And you paid the full price for that um, through your son Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And God, we pray that you would help us to remember that the gospel is something that changes the way we approach life. Um, keep us from any sense of self-righteous entitlement that would lead us to think that, we, um, that we're good people who deserve to have good things happen to us. God, um, in your wisdom, in your goodness, in your full knowledge, you know what is best for us so much more than we know ourselves. And sometimes it's in the darkest moments of our lives, in the moments of our deepest weakness, in situations that seem hopeless to us, that you work in the most powerful ways to make your name known through us um, to the world. And what a beautiful thing that is, God. Um, that's where our hope is found. God, we pray that you would give us a deep trust in your ability to act. And so as we go forth from here into spring break, um, or even into this next week, I pray that you would give us all opportunities to have conversations about where our hope is found. And that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that life came out of death, um, and that in that life, um, we have found new life ourselves, and that is life eternal. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.